We're in Hebrews, the second chapter tonight. I do not um, intend to get through the entire chapter. And so I want to say that from the outset. You know, I think that I've been frustrated in my purposes. So if we get through about half of it, that will be doing well. And uh, I'd like to read the entire chapter, however, so that we have the broader picture in front of us before we start looking at some of the details. So turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll begin reading at the first verse. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which, having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak, but one hath somewhere testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hand. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him. But we behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That by the grace of God he should taste the death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God hath given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. Wherefore it behooves him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to suffer them that I can. And that's far God's word. It's been a month since we've uh, been studying together in the book of Hebrews, and so before I uh, proceed in chapter 2 in a detailed way, let me just try to review what we've seen thus far, bring you up to date. 
remember that the book of Hebrews is an epistolary treatise. And what does that mean? It means it's a theological development, an argument, an extended argument, a systematic argument, a treatise, but written in epistolary form, that is, like a letter. It's being written not only as a long theological document, although the author says, I wrote to you a brief consolation. The author thinks he's been very brief about it. Not only is there a sustained argument here, but it's in a very personal form. It's written as a letter. And the subject of this letter, or this treatise, is the superiority of Christ over everything that the old covenant represented. And because Christ became the superior of everything in the old covenant, there's a call to constant Christian commitment to um, keep the readers from wandering back into Judaism in particular, but wandering away from the Christian faith in one way or another. The book was written, I believe, by uh, an anonymous second-generation Christian, someone who was an associate of the person Timothy, and the book was written to a Hellenistic Jewish congregation, that is, um, Jews that had come to know the Greek way of life because they lived outside of Palestine. And this Hellenistic Jewish congregation was located, I believe, in Italy and knew the author personally. The congregation is commended for its generosity. We know that it has already suffered for the faith to some degree. However, it has not yet suffered martyrdom, the book says. We also know about the congregation that was not made up of new converts. They've been around long enough they should be teachers now, the author says. However, this congregation is being tempted in many ways to drift into apostasy, to announce Christianity. In terms of historical circumstances, I believe Jerusalem is not yet fallen. That's something that would be too relevant to the thesis not to be mentioned if it happened. Um, and on the other hand, Roman persecution, now persecution unto death, is on the horizon. We see this in the book as well. So probably we could date it about 64 AD, but just prior to the Neronian persecution breaking out against the church. Okay, that by way of background. In chapter 1, we've seen two themes taken up. First, the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament prophets. We explored that in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 1, which is perhaps as um, jam-packed the theological three verses as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. In those three verses, Christ is set forth as the apex of God's revelatory work. God has revealed himself in many ways, in many portions, at many times, in many uh, different kinds of literature, many different kinds of revelation. But the highest point of God's revelatory work is his own son, Jesus Christ. And this one who is the highest revelation of God is presented further with the honor of being the creator and possessor of all things, as being identical with God himself, as the one who has completely accomplished salvation for his people, and as the ascended Lord over all. I mean, every one of those premises you see is laid in with such skill. And every one is so important by itself, it would call for um, our bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. But 
the authors just piled up um, one point after another to show how important Christ is. He's superior to the Old Testament prophets. Then in verse 4, through the end of the chapter, we saw that the author begins to set forth an extended argument for the superiority of Christ to the angels. And I told you last time we were on the sentence, that probably surprises us because, well, we don't take angels seriously. Angels are okay for cartoons, angels are okay for the doo-wop 50 songs and so forth. But, I mean, you take angels seriously as something that should be considered part of the real world and something that you might honor, maybe even fall into the error of worshiping. Well, that's not the modern day. And so it surprises us that not only the remainder of chapter 1 but all of chapter 2, in one way or another, is given to this argument of superiority of Christ and angels. The reason why the author does this, he says, is the background of the recipients of the letter. They, unlike 20th century people such as themselves, did take angels seriously. In fact, the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scroll people, the Qumran community, had as one of the key theological premises that Michael the Archangel was going to be superior, was going to be the supreme one in the Messianic age. In fact, Michael would be above the priestly and the king and the Messiah. Now, there are a lot of mistakes in, in, in this, not the least of which, that there will be two Messiahs, the king and the priestly one. We know now that Christ is the prophet priest and king all rolled up into one. But, more importantly for our purposes here, the Dutchie community expected angels to rule in the coming age, even to be higher than the Messiah himself. And so with that kind of deadly theological mistake of background, I believe, the author launches into the superiority of Christ over angels. He tells us that Christ has inherited at his resurrection, I think is the intention, Christ has inherited at his resurrection a superior name to the angels because none of the angels are called sons. Christ is the very Son of God. And the superiority of the Son to the angels is then confirmed by an appeal to seven different passages from the Old Testament. And I stopped at that point in our last lesson to comment on our author's theological uh, method. The very fact that he proves his points by proof texts in the Old Testament tells you what he thought of the Old Testament tells you how he thought theology should be done. tells you how he thought theological disputes were to be resolved. And that's why appeal to the Word of God is the final authority. In these passages, the author points out, argues, that Jesus is Jehovah, that Jesus is the eternal God, that Jesus is the Creator. By contrast, angels have only a servant status, angels are finite and dependent creatures. And so we have Jesus, the eternal creator God, Jehovah himself, set over against these servant status angels who are finite. And finally we read in verse 14 that Christ shall rule until every enemy is subjected under his feet. Alright. That brings us up to date. I'd like to take a little bit of time now to dwell on just one word. The very first word, at least in the English translation, the very first word in the next chapter, therefore. I don't want you to read any further than that. Cover it up. Don't look, don't, don't look ahead. 
Let's just think about that. Therefore, the author says, based on these theological truths, the author is going to move into what is the first of many exhortations and admonitions in the epistle. He now moves away from the objective description of Christ and his theological premises, and he makes an ethical application. He says, therefore, and he comes this very serious. Now, if nothing else, that therefore should tell us something about the nature of Christian theology. The book of Hebrews, in a very vivid way, shows us how down-to-earth theological realities are. I want you to hold on to that word therefore, especially here at the beginning of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Because in something that has disturbed me for as long as I've been a student of Scripture, uh, as long as I've been in academic circles that have talked about theology and the interpretation of Scripture or what have you, repeatedly we run into people, believers and unbelievers for that matter, repeatedly we run into people who think theology is amplifying the sky from the sky. It has no real, it doesn't touch the earth, you know. It's just some kind of ethereal, speculative matter. We talk about all these unseen realities and all these unseen relationships and all these unseen truths, and it really is just something for armchair analysis. It doesn't have any peace to it. it really, the rubber doesn't ever hit the road if you do theology. But the author of Hebrews didn't do theology. Well, we have something that he saw, the Christian outlook. When the author of Hebrews starts talking about angels of all things, can you think of anything more impractical? He starts talking about angels. He says, therefore, and he gets very serious about an ethical application of these two. Because, you see, theology is never idle. Theology is never without relevance for daily life. Now, I have to say that again because we're all subject to what the natural man tends to think and to the tendencies of our age. We all tend to think of theology as, well, I mean, somebody's got to do theology, maybe. You may not have the disrespect for theology that, say, a Gordon Stein does, but on the other hand, you probably don't have all the respect and enthusiasm for theology for somebody who makes his living studying that. After all, that's what he makes his living. He's got to do that. But you see, theology is never without practical relevance. You say, but I know also, I, I've learned theology lots of times when it doesn't have practical relevance. Uh-huh. And what I'm saying is, it never has practical relevance. You say, but I've done theology many times and it didn't have practical relevance. And then, in the conclusion we should draw from that, therefore, is not that theology lacks that relevance, but that you give theology sinful. But you did theology in a woefully incorrect way. But you treated the Word of God as though it was some kind of lifeless, inner, powerless object that you could manipulate and play around with and speculate about. You would just put it away. But the Bible says that it is a powerful tool. It's living and active and sharply than any two-edged sword. The Bible tells us that the Word of God never returns to God's voice. That whenever he sends his word out, it accomplishes something. It accomplishes what he intends for it to, but what you need to understand is it's going to accomplish something. 
And the Word of God sometimes pierces to our inner being and changes us, scrutinizes us, convicts us, guides us, changes us, or sometimes the Word of God harms us. The Word of God works a numbing effect in us, kind of like novocaine, so that we become more dense to theological truth. We become more indifferent to the things in the world. And the reason why that happens is because we've decided we can manipulate the Bible. We can treat theology as a pie-in-the-sky kind of reality. So, again, I'm going to stress this. Theology always has practical relevance. Always has practical relevance. So when you don't see the practical relevance, there's something wrong with you. And you need to pray for God's forgiveness and insight. And say, God, help me to see why this is important. Now, God is the one who says that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfectly furnished for every good work. So if all of Scripture has that profit to it, and you're not getting the profit, then you need to pray that God will help you to receive that, to, to understand how this should change you. Now I realize I'm learning a lot out of one word. Therefore, it is there, it's the background to the way this author does theology. But let, let's go a little bit further now. Let's ask, what could be the practical value to what he said in chapter 1? He's given us all these theological truths. Jesus is superior to the prophet. Jesus is superior to the angels. Therefore, now if you haven't looked, if you don't remember from my reading, what would you still in, what would you put in that one? Therefore what? See the, the sad thing is a lot of us would be stunned and say, Well, I think there's another theological truth that that leads to. I want to know what practical truth that leads to. How should that change your life, Bob? Well, obviously, if Jesus has that place of authority and dignity and honor, and we dare not contradict him, and I suppose if he gives us instructions for our conduct, we dare not disobey him. What other kind of practical implications would this have? So here's what the author says. Very interesting. He says, therefore we ought to pay the greatest attention. Now the word that the author is speaking of, you can look at the Bible again. The word that he's speaking of, as verse 3 will make clear, and we're going to come back to this, is a word that was first spoken through Jesus Christ himself. He says at the middle of verse 3, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard. And so the word of the gospel is first and foremost the word spoken by Christ. Christ who was, as you know from John the first chapter, the word made flesh himself being the incarnate Word of God. The Word that Jesus Christ spoke was unique. Let's look up some passages here that will show us how that is the case. Michael, would you look up from John 14, 6, please? And Marilyn, Acts 4, 12. And uh, Amy, Galatians 1, verses 7 to 9. While I'm tapping these out to save time, I'm going to go down to paragraph with you. Uh, Julie, Hebrews 3, 12, 
Bob, Hebrews 4, 11 and 14. Casey, Hebrews 5, 11 and 12. Mike, Hebrews 6, 1. Mike, okay, you can go to Scott. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Judah, Hebrews 12, 1. Jim, Hebrews 12, 12. Hebrews 12.25 and Don, if you've got the Bible there, Hebrews 13.9. Uh, that a good Bible for a little while. So what I'm saying is that the Word of Jesus Christ is a unique Word because Christ is the unique Savior. John 14.6. That's a very offensive verse. This is a very undemocratic verse. Because when you get your little religious colloquium together and the representatives of all the different religions and cults get together and start talking, and the first thing they're going to lay down is the condition of mutual respect and cordiality is that no one's going to condemn anyone else's views. We're going to respect one another and see to what degree we can agree. And you see, that's that colloquium, Jesus Christ or his spokesman, going to stand up and say, well, there's this one truth we're going to have to get straight on right away, logically. And that is that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Now, if, if we can all agree on that, then of course we can go on and be courteous and talk about our different interpretations and all that. And we're, of course, you know, they're going to throw him right out. They say, no. A condition of mutual respect is that no one is wrong. We don't criticize. So this is not a popular verse. Jesus said, I am the only way to God. And Jesus here, the people would say, well, how could, you know, the hot and hot know about the way to God if they haven't got a Bible and a missionary? And they just say, he's the only way to God. And Jesus knew there would be other people who would, would write religious books and have a great following. I think Jesus is needed other people who would do false wonders and miracles. And for all of that, he said, I am the only way to God. There is no other way. I am the way. This is arrogant claim. It's not true. I am the way. And I am the truth. He doesn't say, I am a truth. I am not one truth among many. He says, I am the truth. It's all summarized right here in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12. No other name. There is no other salvation available except that which is in Jesus Christ. To put it another way, there is no other gospel. There is no other good news. If we don't follow the word of Jesus Christ, which centers on the very person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, there is no good news for us. Galatians 1, 7 to 9. Is there another gospel according to this thing? And that's, what, that's what that broken sentence that you came in on the verse 7 says, which is not enough. 
They preach another gospel because it's not really another. Because it's not good news. They haven't got a gospel. But if anyone presents what they think is another gospel, they'll show the poor ignorant chap the right way. Correct? Be sympathetic to him. Paul says, talk to him on an equal footing. Be a religious co-traveler with him for a while. Engage in dialogue. You know, come with the attitude of detente. Does that Paul does? And Paul gets real rude, doesn't he? Paul gets real strong. He says, let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. Let him be under the ban. He is condemned by God if he embarrasses anything else. And so, we can't escape this. We may be embarrassed by it, in which case you may want to think about uh, another approach to your religious convictions. But if you're going to be a Christian, you have to face this, that there's a uniqueness about the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Accordingly, the very most careful attention should be given to the word of Jesus Christ because eternal issues are at stake here. What the author says here in verse 1, therefore we ought to give, I read in my translation, the more earnest the reason why it says the more earnest seed, which is what we call a comparative construction, grammatically, you compare one thing to another, say this is better than that, or more earnest. The reason why the author, and it's translated that way, is because in first century Greek, the superlative use, especially in Corne, was dying out. It wasn't gone completely. But very often, superlative, that means the best, not comparative, better, but best, highest, most. The superlative was often expressed by means of a comparative construction in Greek. We have a comparative construction, but I want to argue that the author means the superlative. That is to say, he's letting this be the duty of a superlative construction, which would then mean, therefore we ought to give the highest seed, or we ought to give the most earnest seed to the things that we have heard less aptly we drift away from them. And so let's ask ourselves, do people give close attention to studying the revealed word of Jesus Christ? It's a question that I, I guess is almost threadbare because it's asked so often by pastors. But do people in general and do you in particular give earnest seed to studying the word of God? I have to ask beyond that. Do you give it closer attention than anything else in your experience? This is getting very condemnatory, I know. I'm setting my own case too. Do you give it closer attention than anything else in your experience? You know, I know people, I've known times in my own life, I see some of that, where I would more readily pass up studying the Bible than I would miss reading the daily newspaper. You know, we can rationalize why that is, and it's important to stay up on current events and all that, right? But what if the author here says, you ought to give the most earnest seed to the Word of God? And that's giving most earnest seed, and yet, even in a comparative way, we don't do that. But then finally we have to ask, do we give that the highest priority in our lives? Beyond dispute that there's a blue book on that square table, 
I have to assume that I'm somehow inside of your head, having your eyeballs and ears and uh, your hands and so forth, that I have all your perceptions, all of your experiences, and I know what they're like, and I can say that they've changed. So what I want you to do at this point is drive the relatives to the wall with your relatives in a window. You're taking far too much for granted. You want to say you can know something about the object of the world. I want to suggest you're going to be a relative if you can't know anything. And you say, yeah, but everybody can use his eyes to see there's a blue book on the table. You see the blue book, don't you, David? <laughs> you don't? The pure heart can see it. Does anybody see a blue book on your table? Practical sense, you're God. 
and that you do have another God before the living and true God. If the TV is more important to you, the following your own places is more important to you. Clearly the, um, the viewpoint of atheistic philosophers or secularists or politicians is more important to you. I mean, whatever it may be, then don't they raise higher than Jesus Christ? Because theology must have practical relevance. If it doesn't, you aren't doing it correctly. And when we look at our lives, the problem is we aren't living our theology very often. The author of Hebrews won't allow that. Okay, so enough for this. Therefore, he says, we ought to give the more earnest seed, the most earnest seed, to the things that we have heard. But why? What if we don't give the, the most earnest seed? You say, well, I haven't been living that way, and you're probably right, Pastor, I should get on the ball here and do that. Well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, maybe I'll set this week, maybe I'll set tomorrow, maybe in a month or two. I mean, how important can this be? Well, here's how important it is. The author says, last after we drift away. What will be the consequence of taking a light attitude for Jesus Christ in his word? What will become of those who are guilty of spiritual indifference? The author says, we may very well drift away from it. The word there is the same word that would be used of a boat that drifts away by the current of the river because it's not been anchored or tied to the dock. When we don't live on the edge, as it were, the cutting edge of interest in the scriptures and knowing Jesus Christ and studying his word, when we don't pay specific attention to these things, we are in danger of drifting away. And the problem is, when you've been hearing this excoriation that I'm giving you about your lack of attention to the Word of God, is that you probably controlled yourself, well, I'm not inclined to renounce Jesus Christ. Because there's no malicious motive in you, or I'm going to say, oh, no, Jesus, I, I, I give up on you. That's not me. But you see, that's not the problem, either. Although, I mean, that would be very sinful, and I would caution you against having those kind of emotions. But you see, the far more deadly thing is the idea that you can assume that you're really all right with Jesus Christ in the you're floating down the stream away from you all the time. And the person who is drifting away doesn't realize that he or she is drifting away. So in counseling and church discipline cases, how often have I seen people who have been drifting away, but they wouldn't say they've been drifting away. If you ask them, are you still a Christian? They're sure of it. Do you still love Jesus? They're sure of it. But they don't. The person who drifts away, you see, is just spiritually dull what's happening to him. And the author is warning you. Therefore, give the most earnest heed to the scripture. Because if you don't, he may just drift away. I want you to notice how Hebrews 6.19 describes the Christian hope, interestingly. We have, as an anchor of the soul, that hope both sure and steadfast, an anchor of the soul. For those who don't have that true Christian hope don't have an anchor. They're just going to And so the recipients of this letter are in danger of losing all right to being considered authentic Christians. And they're in that danger because of their failure to practice the truth that has come from Jesus Christ. And that danger is constantly brought up in the epistle. We must look at 
those instances. So you'll see how important this verse is to opening the door to the practical reason for the letter. Now look at uh, chapter 3, verse 12. You see the threat of falling away from the living God? Chapter 4, verses 11 and 14. Let us labor therefore to enter into our rest, and send men fall to the king of Israel, and then we'll Say him that we have a great high priest that is passing to heaven, Jesus the Son of God, who has hold fast our profession. Hold fast the profession, lest we fall into the disobedience of unbelief. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. You see what's so frightening about this? It's not just the exasperation of a pastor who can't find enough Sunday school teachers because his people are staying in, in infancy. What the author is suggesting is you are in you are being threatened with falling away from God. When you're not moving on in your Christian life, you're not standing still. That does not happen. If you're not moving ahead, you're falling back. 6-1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from us that leads to death and the faith of us. You see, the call is to press on to maturity, to perfection in the faith. Chapter 10, verses 35. And 36. Now, it may be helpful here to note that the word patience in Scott's translation is a Greek word steadfastness, holding on firmly. So don't cast away your boldness, but rather you have need of steadfastness if you're going to press on and receive the promise. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 1. You see again the call, run the race, the steadfast endurance. Press on, press on. Chapter 12, verse 25. Don't turn away. You see, because we won't escape this judgment. If we turn away from him, we're speaking from heaven. We have no hope. Chapter 13, 9. Do not carry about with Notice the opening words, don't be carried away with these strange doctrines and strange ritual practices and so forth. So over and over, in so many different words, the author of Hebrews keeps pressing what? Don't miss away. Don't wander. Don't turn away. Press on, press forward, hold on tight. This is what the book Jesus is all about. And there is contained in this overall view of the book of Hebrews a truth that is so crucial to our Christian lives and to life in the church um, that it, it frightens me 
so few in the church recognize it, and so and I, I think it's, it's not very often that we hear about it. People need to realize that if I just take church discipline as an example, because that's the most visible and outward manifestation in this when this comes about. The problems that we have in church discipline do not begin at the point when you start dealing with the problem. It began a long time before, weeks, months, probably years before. People who get to the point of having to be put out of the church have been drifting. Not seeing Jesus as the superior one, superior to prophets and angels and all else. Not treating his word as requiring the utmost speed. Not pressing on in the Christian life to be Bible. The path to excommunication does not 100% of the time begin with a malicious attitude that I'm just renounced holiness and renounce Jesus Christ. It doesn't. And the author says, wake up now before it's too late. We've got to get further into this chapter, but this verse really exercises me. It's so important. We want to see how we do our theology. Theology has always got the word therefore to you, okay? Therefore, you live a certain way, if you understand these things. And in this case, if you know about the superiority of Jesus Christ, you better give the utmost to his word. Because if you don't, you're in danger of drifting away. Apathy is an open door to apostasy. Apathy, you may not go through that door. By the grace of God, you may be kept from it. But apathy is just opening the door, and who knows? It's a matter of time for you before you'll become an apostle. Because you've been apathetic. Alright, now verses 2 and beginning of verse 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The author gives here what is called in logic an a fortiori argument. Can anyone tell me what a fortiori arguments are? All the more. All the more arguing from the lesser, from the lesser to the greater. Okay. All fortiori, all fortiori arguments have that kind of flavor of thrust about them. Much more than what the author is saying here is, if in the old covenant the law had penalties that couldn't be escaped, and those penalties were absolutely just, then all the more with the great salvation that's come with the gospel, how do you think you'll escape if you neglect it? He reasons from the lesser to the greater. He says here first that the word spoken through angels proves steadfast. The word spoken there is a passive construction in the Greek. And the only reason I'm taking you into the picture to tell you how this meal was put together by the author is because you may miss something very important if you don't see it. The word spoken by whom? If it's passive, the word spoken by God, what's often called the divine passive, meaning it's a reference to the Almighty during the speaking. If the word spoken, how does God express this word? Through angels, through the mediation of angels. Now what is the word spoken through angels? Who can tell me? Anyone remember angels speaking in the Old Testament? Bob? Could you prove that if someone challenged it? <laughs> well, let me help you. Let's look up some passages. Deuteronomy 33, 2. Um, 
Al, if I get into the verse yet? Would you do that one, Deuteronomy 33, 2? And then, um, Pat, Acts 7:53, and Kathy, Galatians 3, 19. All these will help us see um, that the word spoken to angels is body told correctly. It is the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, Deuteronomy 33, 2. He said the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from the city. He shone forth from Mount Terah. He came with Iris, the holy one, from the south of the mountain floor. Here Moses speaks of the Lord coming to him on the mount, and he says, when he came, he came with myriads of holy ones. Who are the holy ones? The myriads of holy ones that attended the Lord. Well, they're the angels. And you'll see that also in Psalm 68, 17, if any get out to look up, but you can write that in your notes and look it up for yourself. But in the New Testament, we get an explicit reference to that in the speech of Stephen in Acts 7, 53. He received the law and delivered by angels, and do not keep them. See, Stephen says, you, you received the law delivered by angels. The Jews understood the myriads of holy ones that attended the Lord on Sinai were the angels who came and mediated the law to Moses. And uh, Paul noted the same thing in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It is added to the law was ordained to angels. You see that? Okay, so we know what the author of Hebrews is talking about there. He says, if the word spoken through angels, that is to say, if the Mosaic law proves what? Steadfast. Well, you'll forgive me if I indulge in a little hobby horse in here. That's a very important premise, I think, that the law of Moses is steadfast. I've written a couple of books on that and have suffered a little bit of opposition because of it. But I think it's really biblical. We need to understand that the law of Moses, the word that is used here in the Greek, uh, is almost a technical term suggesting legal validity and, and security. The law of Moses and its validity is beyond challenge for this author. The amazing thing is, in the very book, that more than any other New Testament book stresses the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old, in that book the author takes it as a premise upon which he can build theological arguments, a premise that the law of Moses, of course, stands steadfast. It's valid and secure. No one could challenge the law of Moses. And then he does something that perhaps is even more offensive than that, at least to our present day, he says the law of Moses in general is steadfast, and then he says, and I'm going to pick out one aspect of it to prove my point, the penal sanctions. I think our tendency would be to kind of maybe get away from the penal sanctions, because that's the embarrassing part of the law of Moses, right? But this author, he just boldly throws it out there. He says that the law spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and offense received a just recompense of reward. Because, of course, we get, you know we'll see in Mount and stuff. We, we all know, of course, that the penal sanctions were just. So, you know, there are a lot of evangelicals who are not willing to realize that and confess it. But this author did. He said, absolute justice was enshrined in those sanctions. 
Whatever God said should be the penalty for the sins committed against the law of Moses, that was just, that was right. By the way, parenthetically, there are going to always be some people who think that, oh yeah, well they were just, but of course there were other things that would have been just too. This is what I call the plurality of justice view. Justice has a plural nature, which is just a real fancy way of speaking of relativism. Relativism says different strokes for different folks. And here the word strokes is to be taken literally. Different penalties for different folks is what it amounts to. But that isn't justice in any biblical sense. Justice is not plural, it's singular. Justice is the same for all, because God is no respecter of persons. What is just is always just, and is just in all circumstances. And so here's the author of Hebrews. Before he even gets to his gospel point, laying down a view of the Old Testament law of Moses, which is really hard for people today to swallow, but we need to get it down straight. The law of Moses is unalterable, it's steadfast. And secondly, even its penal sanctions are absolutely just. Now the author, of course, he doesn't labor the point like I'm doing. He doesn't argue for it. He's not embarrassed by it. He just goes right up and he says, of course, we take it for granted. Law of Moses proves steadfast in every transgression received the just retribution. Now if that's the case, here's the awful of theory. How much more? Then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Given these premises, it cannot but be the case that even more dire consequences will come upon those who are careless and unconcerned about the salvation which was declared in the gospel. By the way, when it says neglect here in my translation, uh, that's all right as a translation, but you should know that you could easily say, how shall we escape if we are unconcerned or if we are indifferent about so great a salvation? Because people tend to think, I neglect the gospel when I renounce it, or if I take some active opposition to it. The author says, but how will we escape if we just drift on by and not pay any attention, if we're indifferent to it? This language, such a great salvation, is put in here to show the surpassing glory and the importance of the gospel over against everything else, including the law. The salvation that God has brought is so great. And I think maybe if you just meditated on that expression, it would have some salutary effect in your life. Such a great salvation. And when you don't read your Bible, and when you don't live by Christian principle, and when you don't pray to God, and when you don't come to church, and when you don't live in harmony and love towards your Christian brothers and sisters, and when you're disobedient to the laws of God, and when you have an unreconciled attitude toward people, and on and on and on, think about so great a salvation. So great, can I live this way if I've received so great a salvation? Can I be indifferent? There is definitely an increased liability for spreading the word that has come in the gospel. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. Let's turn to that. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. Do you 
And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house of city, shake off the dust from your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Well, if that Sodom and Gomorrah didn't receive a lot of tolerance, did they? Destroyed with fire and brimstone. And so you can imagine what Jesus is saying. Because it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those who reject the gospel. For those who don't give it earnest attention and don't live in crimson. I quoted John Calvin in my notes here because it's such a, a nice way of putting this, I think. So apt. He says, in accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance and all the spies of the gospel. How severe will God be? Think about how great Christ is. Because God will measure his severity according to the greatness and superiority of his son. But what have we read though? That his son is superior overall. And that means the vengeance of God will be more disturbing more terrifying than anything else. Okay. Concluding uh, verse 3 and going on to verse 4, the author says, which having at the first been spoken to the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The authenticity of the Christian gospel, he says, is evident from two things. First, its divine origin, and then secondly, from its powerful confirmation and miracle. The law was mediated by angels. We saw that in verse 2. But the gospel was mediated first and foremost by Jesus Christ. The gospel that the author is so concerned with is one that began with what Jesus spoke on earth, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord was confirmed by others later. And then human evangelists came along who spoke the same gospel, but they did so as mouthpieces for Christ himself. I can't help but think of uh, what Paul says of his own writings in Galatians, the first chapter, verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle, not from men, neither through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In verses 11 and 12, For I make known to you, brethren, as touching the gospel which was preached by me, that it is not after man. For neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it, was, but it came to me through revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel pushes back to Jesus. What he taught on earth and then what he spoke through his mouthpiece, the evangelist, the prophet, the apostles, the early church. <coughs> the good news begins with Jesus himself. It's interesting, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter, we don't have time to read the whole passage, but in verses 36 to 43 of Acts 10, you notice that he stresses that too. That this word that we now proclaim, because it first began in Judea, Jesus preached it, and then others proclaimed it, and it has spread to this point coming to the Gentiles at the point And I think we should keep this in mind. It must always be the succession of any legitimate message of redemption that it begins with Christ, 
and goes to his mediators, his mouthpieces, and then to us. Any gospel, any aspect of our theology that does not trace back to the very teaching of Jesus is not to be received. It's suspect. Now we learn also in this verse that those who have been in first-hand contact with Christ during his earthly ministry were the ones who had evangelized the recipients of this letter. We studied that in our introductory lecture. It says that it was first spoken to the Lord and confirmed unto us by them that heard. We didn't hear Jesus directly. For those who did evangelized us, for the author said. But then in verse 4, uh, this word that was confirmed unto us uh, by them that heard, God is also borne witness to by means of two things. First, signs, wonders, and miracles, or powers, depending on your translation. Then on the other hand, gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's a really um, marvelous and important theological insight here. Um, a little difficult for me to express, but try to, try to follow along here. The author tells us, before he gets to verse 4, about the miraculous confirmation, that the word that was spoken was already a confirmed word. You know, do you see that already just in your own translation? The word for confirmed is in Greek, cosmic to the word that was applied to the law of Moses in verse 2, that it was steadfast, unalterable, firm. Okay, so we have Jesus speaking a word which through his mouth speaking is firm, steadfast, reliable, has authority and validity in itself. And then the author says, and God adds to this the corroboration of miracles and the signs of the Spirit. And why am I belaboring this point? Because we need to understand that the Word of God carries its own authority. The Word of God does not become authoritative because we see a miracle because some kind of powerful attending sign is given. But the word is already confirmed, steadfast, as God's word. And then what the author tells us is God has added to that. God has also bore witness with. By the way, that's all one Greek word. Also bore witness with. So what was already confirmed has now been borne witness with by these miracles. The miracles, the bottom line of what I'm trying to get at is that the miracles do not authorize the teaching. The miracles corroborate the authority of the teaching. Okay, now another thing to, to note here, and that's that the signs and wonders and miracles, or powers, um, are not three different categories. Medieval theologians really had a heyday trying to figure out with the difference between these things. Well, so it all refers to the same category, same concept. wonders, and powers are three words stressing different aspects of this one category of things we would just call miracles. Um, you need to look at two passages quickly here, and then I'll try to just finish for this evening. Acts 2, verse 22. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 12. First of all, Acts 2, verse 22, we'll see all three words used there as well. 
the men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you, by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did by him, in the midst of you. So we see all three of these there, but the, men, the order of mention is different. We tend to say not that there's any important category distinction here. They all run together. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience by signs and wonders and power or mighty works. So again, the same three things are mentioned, but note they are here called the signs of an apostle. The signs of an apostle. As signs, they point beyond themselves to some other truth. They are not important in and of themselves. As wonders, they elicit awe from them because of their superhuman and supernatural character. And as powers, or miracles, if you will, they bring about a significant dynamic outcome. Signs, wonders, and powers were performed among them. And then God further supplemented these miracles, the author says, with gifts of the Holy Spirit. Actually, he says apportionment or distributions of the Spirit. And we would understand that in the sense of gifts that have been distributed by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, in that chapter, we read of the charismatic gifts distributed by the Spirit, and they include, among other things, prophecy, tongues, healing. And so what the author says is, this gospel message originates with Christ, and then came through authorized mouthpieces to spokesmen, and he confirmed that already firm word. He confirmed it or corroborated it with miracles on the one hand and gifts of the Spirit on the other. One last expression according to this will. We need to be reminded that these miraculous and charismatic displays were under the control of God, not under the control of man. This is one of those verses that needs to be read when you hear of charismatics getting together and, and having services where they teach one another how to speak in tongues. Well, nothing could be more ludicrous, although because of the spiritual error involved, it's not funny. But it's ludicrous in terms of the concept of speaking in tongues. A gift of the Spirit's not under the control of man. I can't teach you to do miracles. I can't teach you to speak in tongues. I can't teach you to prophesy. That's a gift of the Spirit according to God's will, not according to man's will. Uh, these gifts are distributed as the Holy Spirit wills. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul says, Well, not all are prophets, are they? Not all are teachers, are they? Not all speak in tongues, do they? The false ones, of course not. And yet we continually run into people, sincere but, but sincerely in the flesh, Christian believers, who tell us that all who are Christians must speak in tongues, or prophesy, or heal. Now, I, I kind of go light on that point because I run into, at least in academic circles, charismatic and say, well, we don't really teach that. problem is, on the lay level, if nothing else, commonly, out in the garden variety, charismatic does say that. 
like I just did some counseling this week with a young man, because members of his family who are Christian charismatic were laying this on him. If he doesn't speak in tongues, then he's not going to be baptized in the Spirit. But you see, the author of Hebrews says, this is according to God's will, not according to us. Not all people. Not all prophets. Not all have the gift of healing. In fact, I would argue that it's much too late to, to send it all the time. I would argue that no one has those gifts today. Those gifts are the signs of an apostle. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12? And that these signs of an apostle are appropriate to the apostolic generation and the founding days of the church. But God is no longer founding or laying the foundation of the church. God is no longer working through the apostolic generation. God is now building the superstructure. And as he's building the superstructure, we should remember the important words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, where as Paul is trying to deal with the Corinthian problem, that these people have the gifts of the Spirit, but not the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, but I show you the most excellent way. And then he says immediately, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, I'm not. The most excellent way is the way of love. And so, I want to end tonight by just suggesting, if you read this passage and you said, oh, I wish God were doing miracles and showing the gifts of the Spirit now, because that would help us to show people the truth of the gospel. The early recipients of the gospel had the advantage of both corroborating signs. If only we had that sort of thing. Well, I want to suggest you're really missing out on a real important, a crucial aspect of our apologetics. If you're looking for miraculous signs to concern the gospel today, the Paul says, comes as the least of the I show you the most excellent way, the way of love. And it shouldn't surprise you that in the upper room discourses and in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, he said, all men will know that I come from the Father by what? And my followers love one another. You want people to really be taken back? You want people to see corroborating signs of the truth of the gospel? Then promote a church full of love. Demonstrate that in your own life and conduct. Because Jesus says, that is what's going to convince people. And we love one another, and we say, hey, there's something really different here. Something really supernatural and powerful. There's a real sign and wonder about that. Now, there was a place for healing, and certainly a place for tongues and prophecy. But as Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, and I did childish things. But when I became a man, I put those things away. The most excellent way for the church to develop, for the superstructure to continue to be built, by the acts of love, that will demonstrate that Christ has come from God. Well, we didn't make it halfway through the chapter. I will make up for this. Yeah, I will. We won't fall behind. I promise you. The sad thing is, this is just all preliminary. What I wanted to talk about is how Jesus was subjecting all things under his feet. That was going to be the main point of tonight's lesson. So, we come in two weeks, and we'll have the main part of tonight's lesson in two weeks. Does anybody want to ask any questions before we stop?
Well, um, to be accurate on this subject, I think you have to say two things. One, once you are saved, you always will be saved. That's, that's the glorious truth of the gospel, a comfort that we all need. That's true. However, the second thing is not everyone who professes to be saved is saved. So, let me put it this way. We have once saved, always saved. And the problem is the people receive that is once professing salvation, always being saved. And that's not the same thing. There are plenty of people who profess salvation who were never saved in the first place. In fact, this book is going to show us in chapter 6 and 10 in particular, but look at chapter 6, there are some who have done all sorts of things and been in contact with all sorts of realities that would, uh, we would think outwardly get all sorts of indications that they're Christians and yet they fall away from the truth. And so again, yes, once you are truly saved, you will always be saved. But that doesn't mean once professing to be saved, you will always be saved, because there are plenty who profess it, and plenty who live in terms of it for a while, who do not persevere to the end. And so maybe the more important thing to say after all of that is, instead of once saved, always saved, is those who persevere to the end. Bob is referring here to something which I guess I'm more generous than a lot of people think I am, including president of the group. I try not to dwell on that, but I've run into that in a lot of, a lot of evangelistic groups. It's just pathetically bad. And, they, and what they will do is, Bob said, they'll do just about anything to get a person to go through the motions of praying the sinner's prayer or whatever. So they'll make some initial profession, and then you can say, okay, you'll never be lost. God will never let you go. Well, the fact of the matter is, going through empty motions will not be honored by God in the first place. So it's not like he has let them go. He's never picked them up. But you give people the fault of what the Puritans called carnal security that they are saved by having gone through those empty motions. When people identify being saved with walking down an aisle, I don't mean people who walk down an aisle are not saved. I, I, I believe that if there's a lot of people in that way. However, I don't think that walking down the aisle is what's saved. I just think that happened to be the outward physical circumstance for the salvation. Okay, anything else you want to ask before we start? God would afflict them. 
That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? But do you understand why? If God afflicts us, then maybe we'll wake up and think, what's going wrong in my life? The worst thing that could happen to an apathetic Christian is for everything to go great. Because then you combine apathy with no outward sign of displeasure from God, and I really do think in that sense God has hardened our hearts, it's just made the way slippery to hell. Because we think, hey, there's nothing wrong here. Our apathy takes us right to the pit. And so if you know Christians who are apathetic, pray that God will bring some persecution into their lives, some tribulation. That could be the most loving thing to happen. God will not allow their apathy to be hardened into disbelief. Our manifest itself finally is this world. Well, the true sign is that the person will come to his senses and be repentant. And God does that in a number of ways. Sometimes he does it without afflicting us, but I think his usual method is to put thorns in our bed as they are back or so. Sometimes if you think that things are going so poorly, I have some feelings on that. If you want to pursue it, it's a strange irony about that. You should say, thanks, God, and not letting you fall away. With all these problems, I know who I am to rely on. And that's a great blessing. Okay, let's go to the Father, we pray that our theology would come to life now. That we wouldn't simply profess some abstract and speculative system of truth that we would be those who walk in the truth. Help us to give the most earnest heed to the word of the gospel, which he has so graciously revealed to your son and those who were his mouthpieces, that gospel which has been confirmed by miraculous signs and works of the Spirit, the gospel which has brought us new life. We ask that you would nourish our lives, that you would help us to mature as your people we would do so not as those who are apathetic, not as those who are drifting away into tradition, but as those who are pressing on for the mark. We ask that you would give us that enthusiasm, that you would motivate us, that you, by your grace and power, would push us ahead. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.